The following audio resource is produced and distributed by Mark Inc. Ministries, 2880 Summit Bridge Road, Bear, Delaware, 19701. Contact us toll-free at 1-877-MARK-INC. Visit us on the web at markinc.org. It occurred to me I was I could die. And I'll never forget, before I had the surgery, we went out one night for ice cream, just the two of us. We left our kids at home, and all I could do was cry. And I was sitting there trying to eat this ice cream cone, and the tears were just streaming down my cheeks. And I said, Chuck, you know, the only thing I know about breast cancer is if I survive for five years, I might beat it. But Mark, our youngest, will only be 15 when that happens, if, if I should die in five years. And he's going to need me more then than he needs me now. And then I said, I'm so sorry for crying all the time. And Chuck stopped me and he said, just remember when you're crying, you're crying for two, because I wish I could cry. If you are listening to this special program, then it's probable that your world has been turned upside down by the words, you have cancer. You probably feel as though you suddenly live in a foreign country where you don't understand the language, malignant, tumor, chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, medical terminology, hard to pronounce medications. The people, doctors, nurses, other cancer patients are strange. The customs, Entering a hospital for treatment when you don't feel sick don't fit your normal life. Maybe you don't even feel ill, but someone has told you that unless you confront this disease, rogue cells will take over your body. The very treatment you are facing is terrifying. The unknown is worse. Chuck and Sharon Betters understand where you are. Through test for a minor complaint, Sharon learned she had breast cancer. Further testing revealed that the cancer had spread and was the beginning of stage 3. Chuck and Sharon hope that their journey into this foreign land of cancer will equip you and your family to face the days ahead with courage and hope. It was the spring of 1987. Pastor Chuck Batters and his wife Sharon were just coming out of several challenging and difficult years of ministry. Things seemed to be settling down. They, along with their four children, were looking forward to the much-needed refreshment of a family vacation. But life was about to change in a most dramatic way. Picking up the story from there, here is Sharon Betters. Well, I went in to see my doctor for uh, my regular physical, and he found uh, an irregularity that he wanted me to have a mammogram to check to see, just to make sure everything was okay. He didn't think there was anything wrong, but... I had had this complaint that was recurring. So I went for my mammogram and I left there knowing that I had a serious problem. The doctor that looked at the, the record said that if it was her, she would recommend having a biopsy. If she was to have the same spot on her breast, she would have a biopsy. But I needed to talk to my doctor. My doctor called a little later and said he wanted me to go to see a surgeon immediately. I went to see a surgeon who was a friend of ours, and uh, as I was getting dressed, he took Chuck by the arm and walked him down the hallway and said, we really have a serious problem here. We need to address this right away. This is very suspicious. Chuck, what was your reaction as the doctor took you by the arm and took you down the hall 
Up to this point, there were no real health issues in either one of your lives. Is that right? We had those little mini scares before with Sharon with the the mammograms and the the self-exams and what have you that uh, were always attributed to milk ducts or, or things like that that we really never paid attention to. And uh, being as young as she was at the time, we weren't all that concerned about this either until I saw the doctor's face when uh, Sharon was in his room getting dressed and he came out and did take me by the arm. The look on his face was, was one of, of real concern. And he, his, his exact words to me were, this isn't good. And I remember my uh, heart sunk to my stomach and I felt the blood draining from my body because the way he said that was, this is, this is so serious that we're going to have to take some steps to, to correct this. So my first response was one of fear and protection. I didn't want Sharon to see that fear because I was concerned that uh, she might be able to read it on my face as well. And I knew we had a long haul ahead of us. Did you actually make eye contact with Sharon immediately after that? I don't think so. I, I think I, I kind of looked away and looked down and because I, I needed to absorb this. It was, it was something that we were going to have to face together. And when you hear those words, cancer, and you see your doctor in somewhat of a panic mode himself, uh, it does concern you as to where 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 is all this going. Tom, I remember sitting in that office, and I remember clearly we didn't look at each other. Uh, the doctor, Dr. Warsaw, who was also a personal friend, was explaining the possibilities and telling us what surgery I might have to have and what kind of treatment. And I, I kept thinking, why is he telling me this? I'm not going to need any of this. Mm. And I tried to get him to tell me, but you don't need to worry about this. And he wouldn't. So I was just trying not to cry as I was listening. But then I think that that mode of, uh, but we have a life to live. We have vacation planned. We need this vacation. We had just come through four years of very intense church conflict. And we needed to be together as a family in a fun way. And so he reluctantly gave us permission to go away on vacation. But then I was going to have to have some, some serious work done. We had not even decided whether we were going to follow the counsel of that particular doctor. We wanted second and third opinions because his belief was that we needed to take some radical steps to correct this problem. And we really wanted to know what all of our options were. One of the great struggles of my life has been one of control, where I tend to think that no matter what the problem is, I can fix it. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was, again, one of those situations where we needed to know what our options were so that I could take control of the situation and fix it. Later, that would uh, prove to be the, the not necessarily true. I did not have the power or the control to fix it. Well, let's talk about that just a little bit because there's people listening in right now who perhaps are in the situation that you've just described. Mm. They're facing the possibility of mm. breast cancer. Mm -hmm. You wanted to go back and get more opinions. In hindsight, was that a form of denial, or do you think that is still good counsel? For me personally, it was good because uh, I wanted to be able to look back and say we did everything with full knowledge. Even though we had never addressed cancer in our lives before, one of the things I learned later is that someone has a better chance of surviving cancer when they are a participant in their treatment, when they do not just allow themselves to be led along and things done to them. 
but they get all the information that they can. It takes the sting out of the word. Mm. And so once I had the biopsy, and and Chuck was the one who told me that I, it was cancer. Mm. I went home from the hospital very sick from the pain medication they had given. And so I'll never forget in our bedroom, my sister was downstairs with the children, and he told me that it was cancer and that we were going to have to face some really hard decisions. And that's when the flurry of doctor's appointments and experts and even our our friend, our surgeon, made calls to local cancer centers in other states, actually, and described my condition in front of us and asked, what treatment would you recommend? And it was exactly what he had recommended. Mm. And then another doctor did the same thing. He was very good about sending us to other specialists. I needed to know, when I looked back, we were facing very radical changes. I needed to know that we had made those decisions with every bit of information. And I would okay. recommend that to anyone facing cancer or any life-threatening disease to take control of the situation mm. as much as possible. Would we do things differently? No, I don't think so, because I, I feel the information we gathered was important information for us to have. We knew what the pros and the cons were of every option that here were the risk factors involved. If, if you have the mastectomy or you don't have the mastectomy, if you have chemotherapy, if you don't have chemotherapy, with the advances that have been made from the time Sharon had the breast cancer to today in breast cancer research and, and, and looking for the cure, I would encourage, highly encourage couples to, to make sure they get all the necessary facts possible so that they can make an informed decision my personal option or opinion, I should say, is that when couples are facing cancer, they, they need aggressive doctors. They need doctors who are, who are going to take the, the proverbial bull by the horns and say, let's, let's, let's march ahead, let's get this taken care of, let's get this resolved. Postponement can be deadly. Not following through can be deadly. There are different forms of breast cancer. Sharon and I don't claim to be experts in breast cancer per se, but right. there are various forms of cancer. Some are more aggressive than others. Uh, some are more deadly than others. Some progress a lot faster than others. And so I think a patient and her husband or their family needs to know all the options that are available. So we, we did our homework. Now, Chuck, you were the one to break the news that it was mm -hmm. cancer. Was that your decision to break the news to her, or did it just sort of happen that way? And how did you approach that? I mean, that's some, some tough words for a husband to share with a wife. Well, it, it was tough. It was, it was a very painful time for both of us. I wanted her to know that we were in this together. Nobody else was going to break this news to her. This was something that we needed to share together. I can't imagine that I would have allowed a, a doctor or, or a friend or somebody else to, to share this news with her because it had to be done in, in the right way at the right time. I knew what her response was going to be, and I needed to be there for her because I know her better than anybody else does. Did you have the temptation to push away going to the doctor for fear there might be bad news? You know, it's interesting. I have friends who are like that. I'm not like that. I want to know. And I would urge any woman listening, don't wait. Listen to your doctor. Listen to your body. Go get the information. Waiting is only going to make things worse. Mm -hmm. It's not going to make things better. So, no, I was aggressive as well. Uh, that's my personality. I needed the information. So when I would go into the hospital, the treatment was that I needed to go in the hospital every four weeks for four days at a time. And I would be hooked up to five or six different kinds of 
chemo, which was actually poison that was going to kill the cancer cells. And and didn't do you any good either. It didn't really. It's interesting because the, the, the chemo doesn't know what the good cells are. And so it killed anything that was fast growing. Hair follicles were gone. And within a week, I had lost all my hair. That was profound and dramatic. I can tell you, mm. almost worse than hearing I had cancer, I think, for a little while. But mm. The treatments were very difficult. They were exhausting and very hard. And it, it was hard because I would go into the hospital feeling fine, hmm. knowing that a week later I wasn't going to be able to get out of bed. But I remember laying on the gurney one time, my doctor, I was in for a checkup, and my I was crying, and it was about three months into the treatment, and the the chemicals really affect you emotionally. And my doctor said, why are you crying? And I said, well... I'm just very depressed. And he said, why are you depressed? And I said, well, I have cancer, and I have to have chemo, and I don't feel good. And he said, Mrs. Betters, you need to look at this as a nightmare. It's only going to last six months, but it's an investment into the rest of your life. So that was the end of that depression, as far as he was concerned. Mm. Again, it was taking control as much as I could. I mean, I was not in control, but... Every time a nurse would stick a needle in me or try to give me a pill, I would ask her to explain it to me because I wanted them to understand that I had a brain and they needed to be respectful mm-hmm. to me as well as a patient. So it was, it was quite a journey. I remember uh, when Sharon was being wheeled in for the, for the surgery at the very beginning, her words to me before they took her into the operating room were something like this. I feel so good. I don't understand why I need to have this done. This is a silent disease. It doesn't manifest itself in loud ways. A woman can be suffering from uh, a very serious illness and not know it if she doesn't take the necessary precautions to find out what's going on inside of her body. But inside of Sharon's body was a tentacle, cancerous, malignant tumor that was growing and was going to eventually kill her if it was not dealt with, but she felt fine. And so that emotion of, of being wheeled into an operating room when there's, you don't have the pain of a broken arm or the pain of, of some other diseases, but uh, you do have the emotional pain that you know you're going to come out of that operating room different than when you went in. Let's talk about the, the, the emotional pain and also the, the C word. How much emotion was spent on, am I going to die, versus this is a major inconvenience? It, it occurred to me I, was, I could die. And I'll never forget, before I had the surgery, we went out one night for ice cream, just the two of us. We left our kids at home, and all I could do was cry. And I was sitting there trying to eat this ice cream cone, and the tears were just streaming down my cheeks. And I said, Chuck, you know, the only thing I know about breast cancer is if I survive for five years, I might beat it. But Mark, our youngest, will only be 15 when that happens, if, if I should die in five years. And he's going to need me more then than he needs me now. And, and then I said, I'm so sorry for crying all the time. And Chuck stopped me, and he said, just remember when you're crying, you're crying for two, because mm-hmm. I wish I could cry. Maybe I could feel better if I could just cry. There was a terror to it. It did not consume us, but it made us change the way we looked at life. We knew that life could be snatched away in an instant. We began to make decisions based on that even more intentionally. If Chuck said, do you want to go for a ride? It didn't matter if I had 10 loads of wash, I would go. If he said, let's go to the beach, let's take the kids and go. And we have so many good family memories Mm -hmm. as a result of that. 
cancer did become a friend. That hmm. sounds very strange to say that. But years later, I would recognize that God had sent it as a friend to help us to make decisions based on what's really important. But when we first heard the word cancer, it was interesting because people would have a hard time saying it. You know, I heard about you having, well, that you're sick. And I recognized that the the word cancer was fear-filled. And I thought, the more I say it, the less power it will have over me. So Mm -hmm. I would say, I have cancer. You mean the cancer that I have. And then it made people more comfortable Mm -hmm. to address it. It took the sting out of the word. We didn't do that originally, though. Until we could get all the information necessary, we didn't use the C word. We avoided it very carefully, and we approached our children because they were all different ages. We approached them differently in informing them. Eventually, we used that word with them, but not not initially. What was your re- response when one of the children said, well, is mommy going to die? What we decided to do was, at least during the first, this, the first stage of all this, as we're gathering the data, as we're trying to figure out exactly what we're going to do, what are we facing? Because being the pastor of a church and the pastor's wife, your business is everybody else's business. It's quickly, it quickly spreads. The people who work at the hospital work in the church. Technicians, the, uh, the blood work, uh, the people in the doctor's offices. It's, it's, it's a public matter for us, even though there's a confidentiality that's involved with the doctor. The word quickly spreads. And so we knew our children were going to hear things and hear the word cancer. And so we wanted to make sure they understood exactly what their mother was facing. Our two youngest children, I felt, were too young to have to deal with this. They didn't need to know all the gory details. How how old were they at the time? 10 and 11. The older two were 15 and and 16. 16. And certainly they knew something was going on. Our our daughter, who's the oldest, she, she knew something was going on. We didn't want to terrorize our children by giving them information that they could not handle. So the basic premise by which we worked was when when something like this, we gave them whatever information they asked for. We didn't divulge information they weren't asking for. We didn't give them more than they could handle. Gradually, they came to understand exactly how sick their mother was and that they needed to help pull together and make make things happen around the house, etc. That sounds like it was a good call. Yeah, I think it You would was. recommend that. Yeah, I, I, I don't think children need to uh, have adult information. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying hide things from your children. I'm not saying lie to them. That's not at all what I'm advocating. Uh, what I am saying is give them information on a need-to-know basis, information that they can handle. Find out what their questions are. Let them ask those questions, and as honestly and as openly as you can, give them that information. Let them know exactly what's going on. So eventually, all of our children knew mom has breast cancer. She's going to have to have surgery, and she's going to have to have some treatments afterwards, and she's going to be sick for a while, and we need to pray together as a family that she's going to get totally well. But I want to go back to something else. When we discovered that Sharon had the breast cancer, it really made the four years of church conflict look like we were in Disney World. Prior to that, that's all we could think about. And there is some truth, and doctors and researchers are discovering more and more, that there is a connection between stress, long-term stress, and some forms of breast cancer. It's highly probable that we were facing four years of church conflict during the same time that Sharon was developing tumors Mm -hmm. in her body. When we realized that we were struggling here now to salvage 
her health and perhaps to save her life, it really did make all that we went through look so trivial, so adolescent. And during the crisis, the four-year crisis, it didn't look that way. We could, that's all we could see. But I, I am a firm believer that God oftentimes prepares us with lesser forms of trial and, and testing and purging and preparation for greater forms. Mm. And in this particular case, that's exactly what happened. Let's talk a little bit about the actual surgery. I, I always thought that if you had breast surgery, they go in and remove the lump. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they remove the whole breast. Yes. It's so tied into your femininity. For both of you, how, how did you deal with that? First of all, what was your thinking about what that would do to you, and what did you think that would do to Chuck's love for you? It's amazing. Of course, I was devastated, and I was concerned, but there was a part of me that was concerned knowing that it was a self-imposed concern because of the way Chuck had demonstrated his love for me previously in our marriage. Somehow I knew that this was not going to make a difference, and for him. I have to tell you that during that time, I don't know of a time where I have felt more loved by my husband Mm. and by the church. Now, of course, since then, I feel that love, but that was a profound experience for me. He was with me every step of the way, from the moment he told me to the great unveiling after the surgery. He was there with me. And That was hard, very, very hard for me, painful for me. But later we learned this phrase called leaning into the pain. Even then, somehow I knew we had to do it right then. Uh, Delaying wasn't going to help anything. He never batted an eye. He treated me as though I was the most appealing woman that he had ever been with. And I can't express to men who may be listening, whose wives are going through this, what an incredible treasure they can give to their wives by the power of God of extending that kind of love to their wives. Chuck was very intentional in the way that he demonstrated that love, and I knew that he was. And for women, I would I would plead with you, if you are experiencing this, to allow your husband to love you. Mm-hmm. There was a choice that I had to make again and again that... I would accept his love that he was giving to me rather than being ashamed. Then the other part of it is that that's our culture, but that's not God's way. But our culture influences even the believer. Absolutely, yes, it does influence, but we have to go back to our worldview and what did the scriptures teach? And the scriptures don't teach this at all. And so I think that was the other thing that really helped me is Chuck, to me, was reflecting his worldview and choosing to accept this is from the Lord and what was his role in helping me to stay focused on the Lord. What a key that was for us in our journey. I remember the difficulty that Sharon had with the aftermath of the surgery. I mean, it is not a pretty surgery. It is a, it is a very invasive surgery, especially for a woman. There is a severity that's involved when you're removing cancerous material. It turned out that Sharon had stage three cancer, which meant that it had spread to some of the lymph nodes uh, surrounding the breast. As Sharon mentioned being intentional. I, I remember knowing that she was going to have trouble with me doing some things. Specifically, I, I knew she was going to have trouble with, as she called it, the unveiling. When she got home from the hospital dressing her wounds, I dressed her wounds. And I wanted her to see that I was comfortable with, 
what she looked like, even though she had been surgically brutalized. I wanted her to know that this was not something that I couldn't look at or that I would turn away from her and not want to have anything to do with her, that she was no longer attractive to me. And I remember when she, uh, on one occasion, I think it was very early in the process, she had taken her first shower and she came out of the shower into the bedroom and she was sobbing hysterically. And she just stood there and just was sobbing hysterically. I remember at that point thinking, the only thing I could do at that point was go over and grab her and hug her and tell her that everything was all right. Uh, because even though she knew in her heart that what I was looking at was not going to make me love her less, she still had to deal with what she had to look at. I mean, her own self-image and the struggle that was there. And so even if the husband is, quote, comfortable, unquote, with what he sees in his wife, she still has to work through that. And she still has to struggle through the fact that, sad as it is in our culture, that's how a woman's femininity and sexuality is measured by the, the curvature and shape of her body. Shortly after Sharon developed this breast cancer, I was asked in an interview on a Christian radio station how this affected me sexually, that my wife was now, uh, had now been brutalized sexually as far as her image is concerned. What was my response to that? And my response was, was, was then and is now. I didn't marry Sharon for her breasts. I didn't marry her because she had the necessary curvatures. There's always somebody more attractive. There's always somebody that's uh, sexually more attractive in terms of what their body looks like. Uh, who is the most beautiful woman in the world or the most handsome man in the world? Uh, have we found that person yet? So there's something that goes much, much deeper, much deeper than the physiological makeup of a person. It's, uh, before Sharon is my wife, she's my sister. She's my sister in Christ. Mm -hmm. We are related on, on a level that's much deeper than uh, husband-wife. That's why I believe when the Bible speaks of heaven, it tells us that we're not given in marriage in heaven. Uh, there's no giving and receiving in marriage because there's a, that's an earthly institution. There's a much higher relationship, and that is the relationship of a man and a woman to each other as brother and sister in Christ. The other side of this is a man has to reason to himself, what would I be like if the role were reversed? What if I had been brutalized with some sort of appearance-altering surgery? How would my wife respond? There was no doubt in my mind how my wife would respond. She would have been just as gentle and just as kind and just as loving as I hope I was toward her. Stop and think about all these movie stars, all these hmm. Bo Derricks and those beautiful, gorgeous people. They can't keep their marriages together for six hmm. weeks. So there has to be something much deeper than what we look like sexually. I don't, I don't know about some of the men that may be listening to this, but I take a look in the mirror every once in a while, too. And I wonder what in the world my wife sees in me. It's much more important for us to understand the depth of a spiritual walk than it is to pride ourselves in some sort of physical thing. And by the way, we pass that on to our daughters. We pass that image concept onto our daughters. It's amazing if you go into a store today and you see what the dresses look like for these little girls that are four, five, and six years old. They're being taught at that early age. Who you are sexually is who you are. So why should it surprise us when they're 15, 16 years old that they're walking around half naked? 
and uh, when they marry. Why should it surprise us that the whole of their relationship is rooted in whether or not they can sexually perform? There's something much deeper. You must love your wife and you must love your husband as a brother and sister in Christ. That's primary. It'd be nice to think that most husbands would have the reaction that you had, Chuck. Mm -hmm. Now, I'd like you both to speak to the woman out there who's saying, I don't have a husband like Chuck. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What advice do you give to her Mm -hmm. to encourage? And, And you're right. There are bad marriages out there. Even amongst Christians. Even amongst Christians. There are Christian men out there. Their wives are going through this. They're thinking to themselves, I don't know how I could ever look at her again. How can I ever make love to her again? Rationalizing in their own minds that the sexuality of their relationship is dependent upon the size and the shape of the breasts. To me, it's an absolutely ridiculous argument. But putting that aside just for a moment, a woman's identity is in Christ. She is going nowhere in terms of dealing with her breast cancer until she can look in the mirror and she can say to herself, I am a daughter of the king. I am a princess. It doesn't matter what I look like. It doesn't matter whether I have that perfect body, that in Christ, he died on that cross for my sins. He gave me eternal life. He shed his blood. To him, I am beautiful. And that the beauty rests in my relationship to him, that intimacy that I have in Christ, And she needs to love her husband. She needs to understand that her husband is struggling with issues that she can't help him with. To a large degree, she cannot help him if she is the victim. If she walks through her life as the victim, that woe is unto me, I have been victimized. If she has the victory and she's not the victim, if she is able to see herself through the eyes of Christ as a daughter, as a princess of the king, then her identity and the the strength that she draws from that transcends the reaction of her husband or the reaction of other people who, you know, when they meet you out in the street after the surgery, their eyes just kind of casually look down to see which breast has been removed. And she's got to understand that the greatest success rate and the greatest opportunity for her to have total healing in her body is if she does not allow herself to become the victim. That means from her husband or other people But that starts by a long, hard look in the mirror. And I want to piggyback on what Chuck has just said. There are studies done that have concluded that women who have a personal faith have a much higher percentage of healing and of good health in circumstances like this. And that would be the first place I would start with a woman who is brokenhearted because her husband is not her, her soulmate in this crisis. I want to talk to you right now as a woman, if you're in that kind of situation, even if you have a wonderful husband, but you don't know Jesus, that would be my message to you, that your deepest need is not even finding the right doctor at this point. Your deepest need is to come to a point of saying, am I really a daughter of the king? Am I a princess? Do I know Jesus? Have I asked him to come into my heart and to forgive me of my sins and to live with me forever? Again and again in my own journey, I had to keep going back to my relationship to Christ because as wonderful as Chuck is, and he to me was the perfect man during this time, he was not enough to satisfy me because only the Lord can satisfy us. We could look at other people and say, if only they would behave in a different way, then this would be easier. Maybe. 
But what is going to give you the strength to face those hard days ahead is knowing that you are a daughter of the king. And that would be the first thing that I would want to offer to you as a woman. Now, as a daughter of the king, you ask yourself this question. What did I do that God would punish me with this disease? That question is going to come up. It came up. <laughs> you know, at first, it's so funny. I mean, I'm so funny sometimes, I guess. I At first, I thought, well, why shouldn't it happen to me? I mean, I'm a woman, and, you know, God's good, and why shouldn't it happen to me? But we were coming home from a round of doctor's visits one day, and it was just building. The pressure was building. And Chuck was driving, and all of a sudden, I just exploded. Why did this happen to me? Mm-hmm. I take care of myself. I eat right. I exercise. I do aerobics. I try to think right, and all of those different things. We don't even have cancer in our background. Mm-hmm. Um, what is going on here? Fortunately, he didn't try to answer why God let this happen. He encouraged me to remember God's faithfulness of the past, and that God had directed our steps in the past, and he would do this now. In the days to come, one of the things that really comforted me was that I had cancer because I live in a broken world. And God says the rain is going to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. And one of the things that Chuck challenged me with was a story that Chuck Colson told about himself, that God gives, allows cancer, I'm not going to get into that theological discussion, but God allows cancer to enter the life of the unbeliever and the believer alike. The difference is he wants the believer to show the world what it's like mm. to travel through life with cancer as a daughter of the king. And so that was a comfort to me to know that I wasn't alone in this and that I didn't think it was a personal sin. It's because I live in a broken world. I questioned it. I I readily admit, uh, God, why? There is no more gentle person. There is no more loving person. There is no greater servant in your kingdom than this woman. Why would you allow her to have this, this horrible disease hit her like this? You know, when you raise those kinds of questions, oftentimes uh, you're so angry that you can't hear the answer when God responds back. And I think it's at times like that that God just simply hugs us. He simply Mm -hmm. embraces us, and he allows us to beat on his chest. Mm -hmm. And during that time, uh, I think God was silent because he was teaching us something that wouldn't become clear for some time What became clear and what we're able to now look back upon, not only with the breast cancer, but other things that we've had to experience, the loss of a child, the difficulty of understanding why God would take a a 16-year-old boy from us the way he did. And we look back on those trials that we've had to experience, and I am able now on this side of the pain to look back on the things that happened to us and say, pain indeed can be your friend. Mm. If you learn to embrace the trial and say to yourself, God is doing something here. One in 10 women develop breast cancer. Well, you can actually look at that as a victim or you can look at that and say, God has entrusted something to me. He is putting me through a trial. He is testing me in a way that he has chosen not to test nine other women. He's chosen to test me this way and my husband this way. And for some reason, he's allowed this trial to come into my life. I want the world to see the difference between a Christian woman and a Christian husband who have to deal with the issue of breast cancer and a non-Christian woman and a non-Christian husband who have to deal with breast cancer. We are not exempt from the diseases of the world. We are part of that broken and fallen world. 
The difference, of course, is how will we respond? How will we embrace the pain that God has allowed to come our way? So that when we come out on the other side, whether we live or die, Paul would say, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So we had to come to the place of understanding that God is a sovereign God, and this would not have happened to us. It would not have happened to us if it wasn't first filtered through that sovereign hand. Mm -hmm. So in one sense of the word, he directed that arrow our way, and he said, now you will have to be struck. And why should we be surprised? Because our Savior went to a cross, and he died on that cross. And in the process of dying on that cross, the whole ugliness of, of sin and death and disease was placed on him on that cross. And we see how enormous the depth of that ugliness is. Why should it surprise us that when he says, pick up your cross and follow me, that along with that is going to come some painful experiences? And yet at the same time, it's okay to yell at God. Plasticized Christianity drives me up the wall. It infuriates me to see how, how Christians are, are so unreal with their faith, as though their God can't handle their questions. Look at the Psalms. Look how often David would say in the Psalms, one word, why? Why, Lord? Why are you so far removed from me? Why can't I hear your voice? And David would raise these incredible, painful questions of why. Why, Lord, did you allow this to happen to me? And then you, as the psalm unfolds, it, it's almost humorous when you see how the psalm unfolds. David is like he's talking to himself. He's reasoning through his doctrine. He's, he's, he's relating to God on the basis of what he believes. Eventually, as those psalms unfold, David begins to talk about the character of God, the faithfulness of God. It's one of the things Sharon mentioned that I mentioned to her early in this process. God has been faithful to us. He's preserved us all these years. He's brought us through this and this and this and this, and he's gonna bring us through this mm -hmm. as well. And no matter what side we come out on, we are the victors. And so you always have to come back to the character and the nature of God. God is a faithful God. God sustains us, he protects us. Sure, she could have died. When, when I hear people talking about prayer requests that they've made and, and they'll say something like, well, so-and-so was at an accident and we prayed for their healing and praise the Lord, God healed them. They mm -hmm. were salvaged through that. Or so-and-so has breast cancer and we're praying that God would heal that person. Praise the Lord, they've been healed. Well, are we able to praise the Lord when the person dies? Are we able to praise the Lord when the healing doesn't take place? Are we able to praise the Lord no matter what the circumstances are? That was the challenge to us. We've talked about how the Lord uses these kind of things to purify us, to, to mold us into the image of Christ, although we haven't used those exact words. That's what happens. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a discipline that God uses. Well, how do you separate that from the concept that he's pouring out a punishment or a wrath upon me for this? We have to understand that God does not punish his children. He disciplines us. When we become Christians, when we trust Christ as our Savior and our Lord, the wrath of God has been removed. If the eternal wrath of God has been removed from us, that we no longer have to face the consequences of our sins eternally, how much more so temporally? Our God doesn't punish us. I think it's, it's a wrong strategy for parents to punish their children. Punishment satisfies the punisher. It doesn't satisfy the need of that child. We must learn the difference between punishing our children and disciplining our children. Discipline, according to the Paschal Discourses in John 14 through 16, 
Discipline is the way in which God takes a tree and he prunes it. He takes the dead wood away. He cuts it back. It's a painful process where God is cutting away that which sucks the life or draws the life out of that individual. It robs him or her of the nourishment that comes from being in Christ, being in the vine. And so that disciplinary process is oftentimes conditioned by disease that God allows to come our way. It comes from bearing the consequences of bad decisions that we've made. It comes from those who might exhort us or those who might teach us that what the, the path we're on is wrong. I don't think God gives breast cancer to Christian women to punish them. I think God may allow us the privilege of walking through some very painful moments in order to draw us into a greater intimacy with himself. And I think that as parents, we, we need to do that. Remember in raising our children, there were times of alienation. There were times when my children felt very far from me, and a lot of that was intentional, where I wanted the children to feel that alienation because they had done something wrong and they needed to feel the pain of that wrong. But to keep them alienated or to keep them separated from me is to punish. And so I was looking for that way, like the prodigal son's father, to meet them halfway, to draw them into an understanding of that word grace. So I think that Christians need to distinguish between that which God does to punish and that which God does to discipline. Those of us who maybe are out there, those who are listening to this, who don't know Christ, you are still under the wrath of God, and that punishment is inevitable. You can have it one of two ways. You can either have that wrath of God on your head or you can have it on Christ's head. And that's the difference I feel between punishment and discipline. Sharon, I've heard you speak on this before. As you share your story of when you went through this, there are several stages that you go through. As I heard you speak, I heard denial that it couldn't be me. I heard, in a sense, delay. Let's go on vacation. I want to get this out of my mind. I heard you basically come off and say, I'm going to approach this with a stiff upper lip. I'll get through this. Philosophical, why not me? And then anger, why me? Then grief, then thankfulness. Mm -hmm. Take us through that whole six-month process and those steps. Yes. Right after my surgery, I was sitting on the edge of my bed looking out the window at this brilliant July day, and I was afraid. We had not gotten the results back from the surgery. We didn't know what my treatment would be. And it occurred to me at that moment that I could die from this. And I asked the Lord, what does the future hold? How, how are you going to get through this? And he reminded me of a verse that I had memorized as a child from Lamentations, where he said, my mercies are new every morning. Great is my faithfulness. And I really believe that he was telling me that every morning when I would get up, he would give me just what I needed for that day, that I could trust him for that. Later, he led me to a passage in Isaiah 45, starting with verse 2, where he said, I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. And as I looked at that passage, coupled with the, the promise to give me new mercies every morning, I believe that God was saying to me that he was going to give me treasures in the darkness. Hmm. We, we were in a foreign hmm. land called cancer. We hmm. didn't know the language or the culture, the customs. We knew nothing. But here I believe God was saying, I am there with you. 
and I am going to cut through all of those terrible things for you. I am going to give you the treasures of darkness, treasures and riches that we would probably never experience in any other circumstances. I knew that he wasn't saying, and I'm going to make you well. I, I, some, I knew that he wasn't saying, and you're not going to die. He was saying, I'm going to send treasures to you so that you will know who I am, what Chuck said earlier, his character, and that I call you by name. And so I knew then that I was to look for those treasures every day, that he was going to give me something that would let me know I know exactly where you are right now and what's going on with you. I never forget one day Dan, who was 11 then, kept kissing on me. And he's a very affectionate person, but he was hugging and kissing me more than normal. And I said, Dan, I love it, but what's going on? And he said, well, my teacher said that you need 12 hugs a day to live longer. So this is my way of helping you live longer. Mm. And I think he was more aware of what was going on than we realized. Yeah. And there were the, the time that our son, who was almost 16, Chuck, who was kissing me on the top of my head... And he said, Mommy, kissing you is like kissing a, a baby because I had no hair and my hair was my head was very soft. Little treasures like that that mm. that reminded me when when my hair fell out, I thought, what better way could God remind me that he knows my name? He says, I know the hairs of your head. I know how many there are. And here my hair was falling out every second. It was changing. And he knew how many hairs were mm. on my head. I think that the focus had to be I know my focus had to be his word. And I was going back in preparation for this interview. I went back into my Bible study notes uh, that I was teaching at the time. And I was teaching from the book of Psalms. And any woman who's listening, you must have the word as the grid through which you view life. You must keep going back to God's word. Take the anger and the fear and the denial and the delay and all of those things and say, all right, what does God's word have to say about this? And always I would come back to this passage where he would say, there are treasures here for you. Open your eyes and hmm. open your hands and be willing to, to receive them and enjoy them. Hmm. What would you say to someone who, again, she's just found out she's at the very beginning of this. How am I going to make it through the next six months? Is, is it just one day at a time? How do you get through it? The first thing I would do would be uh, to pray for her and with her, ask her if I could pray with her and ask the Lord to guide her steps. The second, I would I would say, make sure you have a good doctor, get a couple of opinions, get as much information as you can, make sure that you do what the doctors tell you to do once you make up your mind as to what needs to be done. But I would focus on the spiritual aspects because without Jesus as my Savior and my companion, I'm not sure how I would have been able to survive those times. And so I would want that woman to make sure that she knows Jesus as her personal Savior and not be thinking, well, there's an angel on my shoulder and that's who's watching over me, but to recognize that God wants to draw her into his heart through his son Jesus. And if she doesn't know him at this moment, he might use the darkness of cancer hmm. to open up her heart to her need for him. If this woman already knows the Lord, I would urge her to stay focused on His Word, to spend time in the Word. I journaled. I was in His Word. I allowed people to help me, to pray for me, to pray with me. And then the other part of it is to not be a victim and to not make it all about yourself, but to recognize that there are things that you can do for other people, even in the midst of cancer. And so to look for those ways of reflecting the glory of God, even in the darkness. And I would have a word for the husbands. I love my wife more today than I've ever loved her because we've been through so much together. And the breast cancer 
generated an even greater depth of commitment on my part to show my wife and prove to my wife beyond any shadow of a doubt it didn't matter what she looked like. I love her just the way she is. I think of a passage in Ephesians chapter 5, which says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might present the church to himself as a bride, not having any spots or wrinkles or any such thing. You know, that day is not going to happen until we stand before Jesus face to face and we are perfected in his glory. The implication of that passage, of course, is that the church has spots and wrinkles and blemishes, and yet Christ loves us. He loves us unconditionally. There are no strings attached. He sees all of our warts, all of our failures, all of our weaknesses, all of our inconsistencies, and his love is still constant. And he turns to the husbands and he says, that's how I want you to love your wife. That's how I want you to treat your wife. I want you to understand that the way in which I treat you as the church is the way I want you to treat this woman. She is your bride. You know, there's a wonderful passage in 1 Peter that talks about the relationship of a husband and a wife, and he puts it this way, that we are to love her as the weaker vessel. And when you really understand that passage, he's not talking about physical strength. He's not talking about inferiority. When he uses the term weaker vessel, he's talking about my translation now, fine china. You treat your wife like fine china. You don't treat her the same way that you do all the other dishes in the house. You showcase her. She gets put up in the china closet. She is the one that's brought out on the special occasions. She is the one that is cherished and loved in a way that you don't love anybody else. And especially when your wife has learned that she has breast cancer, that is the time for you to stand in the gap as a man, as a real man, as a loving and caring man, And let your wife know that you're in this together with her from the very beginning until it's all over. You are going to love her in the same way that Christ has loved you. To hear more about The Better's Journey, you can order a detailed account by Sharon Betters. Sharon shared her message learning to see when the lights go out a year after she was diagnosed with cancer. It is packaged as a CD greeting card with space for a personal message. It is available from Mark Inc. Ministries. Contact us by writing to Chuck and Sharon Batters, care of Mark Inc. Ministries, 2880 Summit Bridge Road, Bear, Delaware, 19701. Call us toll-free at 1-877-M-A-R-K-I-N-C. Visit our website for additional resource information or to email us. Our website address is www.markinc.org. That's markinc.org.